Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. Well, it is 2024. Uh, Happy New Year to everyone around the world. Uh, it is it is wild that we are in 2024, and uh, it's been a it's been a crazy couple of years um, in this uh, in this decade. Uh, there's obviously many things going on in the world. Um, there's conflict, uh, the climate, elections, um, and hopefully there's some creativity out there. People are still creating, whether it's with ideas or with words or writing or in, in uh, various uh, forms. So I, I hope everyone's doing well out there. The podcast is still going strong. Uh, just kind of keep you know going, going, going. Uh, I, I plan on uh, putting as many uh, conversations out there for you guys as uh, much as I can. Uh, I really enjoy it. I can't turn down a, uh, a good conversation. And so I hope to have um, wonderful guests, uh, guests where names you know, names you don't know, but really just kind of exposing you to uh, different ideas, um, different ideas across the political spectrum, uh, across histories. Uh, cultures. Um, still my aim. This is the uh, fourth year now. Uh, I just, it just was three years back in, in November of 2023. So it's crazy to think that I've been doing this for three years and uh, close to 300 episodes soon. So uh, it's a, it's a labor of love. I, I really f- feel passionate about doing this stuff and I, I try to make it as accessible for people as much as I can. And so I'm filled with uh, much energy for the year. And, um, of course I still have, you know, my day job and my personal life and many other things, but I am going to try and, uh, continue to put these out, uh, definitely weekly. We'll see how, how, how much I can do, uh, uh, twice weekly, but, uh, so far so good. Thought I'd start the new year off with a topic that, uh, a lot of people discuss and a lot of people are worried or interested in. And, uh, that topic is on equality. Um, and so nobody better uh, to to talk with than with Darren McMahon. Darren is a historian. He's an author, public speaker. He's a professor of history at Dartmouth College. And uh, he has his uh, PhD from Yale. He also is educated at University of California, Berkeley. He's received many major fellowships uh, from the Mellon and Guggenheim Foundations. He's been a visiting scholar at Columbia, New York University, Yale University. And in various universities around the world, he's written everywhere, uh, New Republic, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. Uh, He's done it all. He's written many books. And uh, his new one is just released a couple months ago. It's called Equality, the History of an Elusive Idea. And that's what we talk about in this conversation. We start by talking about how do we define equality and also inequality. Talk about hierarchy. Where does hierarchy fit? We talk about equality is not being uh, sameness and why that's important. We talk about equality as a value. Do we see equality in, in other uh, animals, other species? And where does equality come from? We talk about um, the hierarchy, uh, reverse hierarchy dominance theory for equality. We, of course, talk about cooperation. We talk about slavery. We talk about the impact of religion and contributing to uh, systematic inequality. We talk about the Greeks and their complicated history with equality, the complexity of Enlightenment values. 
And where does equality go in the coming years in our modern society? Uh, again, Darren is absolutely brilliant. He's fantastic. And he's so nice. He is, he is so nice to talk to, uh, you know, offline. And, and, uh, and when we hit record, just a genuinely nice person. And as you hear, uh, just, just brilliant. And he really is. He, he's, he's very, very unassuming. He just sounds like a guy you could, uh, you know, have, uh, have a meal with and be at a party. But he is, he is uh, definitely oozing with uh, lots of wisdom. Um, and uh, it's nice. It's nice that he makes um, himself kind of uh, very attainable. It's, it's not anything uh, kind of removed or too academic or he's, he's definitely not in the uh, ivory tower. So um, this is an important topic. This is something that people care about. Equality is important. And understanding the history of it, I think, is, is tremendously important as well. And, and Darren just does a great job in his, in his book. So. As always, you can find this uh, conversation and all the conversations at Converging Dialogues at Substack.com and also at YouTube. Um, it really makes me super happy when uh, everybody uh, subscribes and follows and shares and even when you guys contribute, which is really nice. Um, and uh, yeah, so please uh, keep subscribing, keep following, keep sharing with people you know might like the podcast. Um, trying to continue to refine it, refine it, refine it, and make it even better. So it really helps when people support and when they when they follow and share. Um, I really appreciate that. And uh, now I bring you Darren McBam. I'm here with Darren McMahon. Uh, Darren, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I've been uh, greatly looking forward to speaking with you for quite some time now. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You have a a, a great book. Uh, really, I, I I saw it. The, the The title was interesting. The cover's interesting. I didn't. I went into it with zero expectations, and I was kind of blown away. So, it's called Equality: A History of an Elusive Idea. Um, it's out through Basic Books, and you basically talk about the very easy topic of equality and the history of it and where it comes from and why do we fight about it and why we're going to keep fighting about it. And, uh, yeah, so you're going to solve it for us. Um, <laughs> absolutely. All of the mystery will be wrapped up after our conversation. <laughs> so, uh, before we, before we get into it, uh, why don't you just tell listeners, uh, who you are, uh, professionally, academically, and, uh, what you're, what you're currently, uh, up to. Sure. Well, I'm a historian by training. Uh, I do intellectual history in particular. I teach at Dartmouth College and have for the last decade or so. Um, and I've written books about ideas and concepts uh, over the long durée, a little bit like this one. So I wrote a history of happiness. Uh, I wrote a history of ideas of genius and creativity. Um, I wrote a history of the uh, opposition to the Enlightenment and, and now equality. So kind of working my way through these big ideas until I die. Maybe, maybe you'll get to love. Once you get, that's the hard one. We're trying to write an, <laughs> about the idea of love. That's like basically impossible. <laughs> exactly. Let me know when you finish that one. <laughs> um, so it's great. So how long have you been at Dartmouth? Have you been there for a while or? About a decade. Yeah, about a decade. I taught before that at Florida State for 10 years and then, you know, kind of jumped around like people do. But uh -huh. Yeah. yeah. Dar Dartmouth's a good institution. It's a great place. Um, it really is. I love the students and it's, it's been good to me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, 
Let's talk about equality. How do you define it? Uh, just an right. operational definition. I'm sure people will get mad at you, you know, on both sides of this. You know, there's everyone always gets upset about definitions. But I guess talk about an operational definition of equality, um, but then also um, inequality as well. We usually talk about some of those kind of connected or together. So how do we how do we understand these concepts? Yeah, so definitions for historians are different because we don't apply sort of universal definitions that hold in all time and and all places, but we look at development of concepts and and development of definitions. Uh, And the place I always like to start is with with etymologies. So the the root of the word, well, the the etymology of the word in in English and other languages is the Latin term equalitas, which comes from the verb equo equare. Um, And that means... uh, to make equal, um, but it also means, first and foremost, to compare. And I think that's crucial. Um, equality is, is a concept of comparison. It, it asks us to draw um, relationships between dissimilar things uh, or different things uh, and to, to kind of forge connections between them. So it's a concept of comparison. Um, when, we, uh, when we equalize, we, we try to balance things. And that's also embedded in this Latin root and, and also the Greek precedents. And it refers to the action of, of making level on a balance scale. Right? You put two things on a scale and you weigh them mm-hmm. and you try to equalize them. Uh, you try to make them level. That's another relationship to the word from early on, uh, the idea of leveling, uh, comparing uh, and weighing, sizing up, and then leveling. And leveling can mean leveling on the balance scale, but it also can mean leveling like, you know, when a, when a carpenter takes a, a plane and tries to smooth down a surface mm-hmm. and, and sort of grind down the protruding bits, uh, and you get a sense there of, of, of a little bit of the potential violence by forcing things into, uh, in, in, into a common, common area. Mm-hmm. So all those things are going on, uh, I think, with equality uh, and uh, well, I'll, I'll leave it at that and we'll, we'll pick it up. Yeah. One of the things you talk about in the book, which I thought was really interesting, as you're saying this here, I'm thinking about fairness, uh, maybe justice, kind of these that, that, that visual of these scales of sorts. But one of the things you talk about earlier in the book is that there's this trend towards a consistency with hierarchy um, mm-hmm. and, and also a type of you know exclusion. I guess talk about this idea of hierarchy that's kind of embedded or uh, adjacent to equality? Sure. So, you know, I think most people, when they think about hierarchy in relationship to equality, think of them as opposites. Um, but as you just suggested, they're actually related in, in, in many cases. And I'll give you, you know, kind of a thought example of, of why that's the case. I mean, it, it, say you and I are trying to size each other up, measure each other, and we want to uh, weigh uh, whether we're equals, and we're going to make some appeal to what we share in common. Uh, and we might say, oh, well, you know, we're both professors. Oh, yeah, we're equal as professors. Implicit in that statement, though, is the assumption that those who are not professors are somehow not equal, right? Uh, and this happens over and over again uh, in human history. People make equality claims on the basis of, of some host property that, that uh, the various participants uh, are said to share. And that can be a you know, place of birth, or it can be sex or gender, it can be uh, uh, one's religion. Um, and very often, uh, that equality claim, far from being the opposite of equality, is actually a hierarchical premise. It's the basis upon which then I establish inequality and mm. unequalness. And this, this happens over and over again in human history, uh, and it's really a kind of central theme of the book. 
Is, is there these ideas of kind of, it seems that there's these ideas of like levels to things, right? So like in your example, <clears throat> both of us can both be professors. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pretty sure you're a much better professor than I am. And you've been doing it longer than I have, and you do it full time, and so we're, we're, it's, it's already uh, uh, not equal in in a, in a good way, right? In a good way for you. But there's this way of like, yeah, we may let's say for a sake of argument, you know, we're equal as you know professors, but we're not equal with uh, you know class. Let's say, let's say you know I'm, uh, you know middle class and, you know, you're super wealthy or, you know, um, you're really poor and I'm kind of middle class or whatever. Right. Um, right. Th- like you could be, you could have, because we're so complex, there's going to be some space where we have equality, but then other spaces where we don't, is this kind yeah. of the idea of the hierarchy of like, there's an order to things of like where the hierarchy is depending on whatever the variables are, or is it something different? Well, I mean, I think you put your finger on something really important here. We can say we're equaled on, on the basis of anything, right? Uh, and so it becomes important to establish, well, we're equal in terms of what uh, and it, in what the situation is and what we're, we're exactly talking about. But, but the point I'd make here is that when we, we make an equality claim between us, uh, there's assumption that, as you say, all sorts of other things can be different. Equality is not identity. I, I quote a book, uh, a German philosopher earlier in, in the book who, who makes the point that absolute equality is a contradiction in terms because absolute equality would be identity. Uh, and, and identity is not equality. Equality is looking for the kind of, you know, overlap in uh, difference. Mm. So we, you know, you and I are as different as our, um, as our, as our fingerprints, as our DNA, as our facial features, et cetera. And in mm. fact, most people, when they encounter the world, see difference first. Uh, and equality is something that they impute. Mm. Uh, so I use the phrase drawing on my uh, colleague, Seep Sturman, who uh, wrote a wonderful book um, uh, on the kind of history of thinking about a common humanity. Uh, he, he talks about imaginary equality. Mm. Equality is always a, a relationship that we imagine um, and, and then we give credence or importance. And when other people share that, our imaginary ideas of equality become part of a social imaginary and therefore they have thereafter they have real heft and importance. So when I say imaginary equality, I don't mean that equality is not you know, somehow a, a, an illusion, mm-hmm. uh, that it's not real, but rather it's, it's a relationship that we conjure first and foremost in our minds and then we uh, imbue with importance. And so what we think are the, you know, the important dependent variables uh, will change uh, as, as they do over history um, and you know, will continue to this day. If I could make you know, just one other point here, though, mm-hmm. and, th- and that is that... Um, you know, from, from the beginning, then you see that difference is embedded in notions of equality. I think this is really important. This is something that's come up uh, more recently again. But, um, you know, you and I make an equality claim, uh, but we assume that all kinds of other things are different. In other words, equality is not sameness. Mm. Um, and yet, and this is, this is important too, um, from very early on, that idea of leveling things, right, mm-hmm. uh, 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 drawing comparison does... Uh, Get bound up with notions of sameness. So, if you look at uh, early modern uh, definitions of equality, you'll often see it glossed with things like uniformity or conformity, mm. even sameness. Right? Equals are people of the same age. That actually comes up surprisingly often. 
uh, equals are people of the same rank. Um, so there's, there's, there's this tension between difference and sameness uh, in, in the concept from very early on. Aristotle says in the politics um, that, that a polis, the, the city-shaped state, should be composed of um, uh, homeoi, uh, similar ones and equals, and he, and he means both things. We should, you know, uh, we should have people who are alike, and they should be equal. And those who are not alike are not equal. And that tension plays out again and again, and is very much, I think, a part of our, our, our current discussion today. So, somewhat, as I'm thinking about this, I mean, that, that's all very, very helpful, especially this idea that equality is not sameness. I think people think of it that way. I think the leveling out is a much better probably a better way of, of thinking about it, but there's something, this could be maybe my, you know, uh, infusion here, but there seems implicit with this idea of like value, right? That we see equality as a value. Um, when you're talking about an idea, I have to always think that there's some kind of implicit values that are coming from it or behind it. And we might talk about this with, as we go through some of the history of it, but what do you think about this idea of, let me ask it differently. Could you, mm -hmm. could you have both, um, uh, dimensions here? So could you have equality with that is valueless? right? Kind of a neutral, you know, kind of, um, you know, a, uh, you know, just a, a, a space where there's no value attached to it, right? Almost like, um, Mathematics. yeah, um, something that's really removed from any of that. And, or do you think that equality is, you know, too nested within a value system or a value hierarchy? It could be, uh, maybe not a universal or globalist one, but a particular one. So, yeah, do, do, is, do you feel equality is something that can be valueless or there's always an implicit value that's kind of attached to it? I think there's always value attached to it. Uh, and, you know, when we make inequality claims, we're making claims about value, right? Uh, because, again, if the inequality is sort of embedded in the discussion, we're, we're, we're establishing a ranking. Uh, and who is equal... equal um, according to what, what does that entitle them to? Um, value is embedded in, in it from very early on. Um, and, you know, I think you point though something really interesting, and that is, <clears throat> I, I mentioned this idea of equality as, as, you know, kind of drawing the level between, um, you know, hands in a scale. And of course that image, uh, the, um, the, the scales of justice is very early on um, a, a symbol of, of justice. And, um, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans all have this idea that the Greeks really nail uh, that, that equality and justice go hand in hand. Um, and in many religious traditions, and we can get into this as well, uh, you get a kind of um, validation put on notions of, of fellowship or equality that give it a further sacrality. And so, uh, you know, when we talk about equality today, it's on the back of this long, long history, which is, you know, just cemented that that um, that idea that that equality and justice go hand in hand, uh, that um, that equality and value, as you say, go hand in hand. I think it's very very difficult to get away from that, uh, and, and probably impossible. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I, I don't know if there is. Maybe there is a space for it, but I would 
I think people would be hard pressed to kind of find it. I think we're always going to have some loading of, of value. So the, the real important question here, or one of the important questions here is, where does it come from, right? So you spend mm-hmm. a couple hundred pages trying to walk us and march us through this history of equality. I guess before we go to kind of the first traces of equality as an idea with, you know, hunter-gatherers, you know, 20,000 years ago, you know, the ideas of power, leadership, in-group, out-group dynamics, do, do we think that some piece or percentage of equality is seen in other species or other animals, um, whether it's, you know, the great apes, you know, other primates uh, or other social animals or things like that? Or do you think this is a kind of a uniquely human um, realization, I guess, or creation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a uniquely human realization because, again, if you think of equality as a kind of imagined re- relationship between things, I think it takes a certain level of uh, of intelligence to do that kind, and of course, then representations of uh, of the association. Um, but you know, there are animals in which uh, hierarchies are, are uh, embedded and fixed. There are animals in which uh, social animals in which hierarchies are contested, and there are animals that don't uh, have hierarchies. And so, in in that respect, I suppose you could talk about you know uh, uh, equal llamas or something. I, I'm not <laughs> sure what the, what the beast would be. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so yeah, de- it definitely does feel very human, and uh, at the very least, we're probably only going to know it extensively with humans. But, you know, if it is some version of it with other animals, you know, how could we really know or measure it? But you know, that that's that's for future generations, I guess, to figure out. So we we <laughs> so where do we see these first traces of of equality? Um, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, there's 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 some of this here that you say with hunter gatherers. You know, so where do we see? Equality and, and where do we? I mean, again, it's it's long time, thousands of years ago, but millennia ago. But how how does is is it is it connected with bigger brains and intelligence and able to use tools and all the things we usually hear? Where it's like, okay, we're getting basically abstraction. Like, is it, that's that's it's an abstract idea of sorts that's rooted. But how how do we see where it forms? Yeah, I think it, it. You know, when we get into the specifics, it's it's useful because equality is this abstract idea. And as you just said, you know, you can you can have equality of almost anything. And, you know, immediately you have to ask equality of what and equality for whom. Um, and so that's that's one of the things that's sort of. I mean, believe me, I've stayed up <laughs> late at night uh, pondering all this because it can it can take you in so many different directions. But when we talk about representations of idea of of, of equality or ideas of equality. You know, I think we can't do that until you have writing um, and you have, you know, kind of records of this um, to, to, to glean concepts. Uh, and I, I trace the sort of first self-conscious representations of ideas of equality to the first millennium uh, BCE, the, the so-called axial age. And really, they come out of uh, the major wisdom and religious traditions. But you're pointing to something equally important, and that is uh, that, you know, we can look at, at various societies and say, well, you know, they interact with greater degrees of social equality, say, or material equality, or they share uh, decision making. Um, and there are a lot of people who, who argue that uh, our hunter-gatherer ancestors, you know, homo sapiens uh, who've been on the planet for you know, 300,000 years uh, up until about 12,000 years ago, um, uh, lived with a, a certain degree of equality, material equality, maybe even a kind of social equality. Um, now, that's 
that's a kind of retrospective judgment and it's based upon, um, you know, sort of complex uh, analysis and whatnot. But I think there's, there's something to that claim and we can unpack it a little bit. Uh, and, and the idea would be that, you know, our hunter-gatherer ancestors didn't accumulate things. There weren't massive distinctions between them in terms of wealth. Uh, that mm. There may not have been sort of hereditary forms of power, uh, that they were on the whole acephalous societies, that is to say societies without heads or, or, or um, inherited leadership. Um, and that, you know, when we compare them to the societies that develop afterwards, uh, they look they look pretty equal, and there's a long history too, of course, of of, of people, uh, religious figures, and then later anthropologists, sort of imagining and imputing onto the past certain kinds of equality uh, that we've we've since lost. Another piece here that I'm curious about is, you know, we're talking about kind of origins of where you know where where equality is, is starting. I'm curious about you talk about a little bit in the book is a few things is this idea of a hierarchy system, which we've already mentioned. Um, and there's this idea of status and rank and dominance and, and submission. Uh, primates do this, right? So we're, we're, saying, we're saying that equality is probably a human thing, but the idea of hierarchy is not a human thing or exclusively a human thing. Um, and so there's the reverse dominance hierarchy theory, which you can explain if you want. But it, more so now, I mean, we see that, I, I'll say this, I feel some people overemphasize this idea of hierarchies in nature. Uh, mm-hmm. But I definitely think a lot more people probably underemphasize it. I mean, it's definitely a real thing. I think where people get squeamish about it is this idea of, again, values, morals, you know, oppressing, things like that. I don't think implicit in that is hierarchies are evil or bad. I think that they do provide some structure to the world or to, to certain things. We see that all in nature. But I guess this question of where does hierarchy fit in? With, this, with these ideas, you can talk about the theory and I guess kind of the receptions that people have towards it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you put your finger on something really important. First of all, um, we're uncomfortable talking about hierarchy. I think this is particularly true in democratic societies where, you know, we're ostensibly all equal. And so to, to talk about hierarchy in the first place makes us kind of squeamish. Mm. It's a taboo subject to some degree. Um, and yet, you know, uh, I think there's a strong case to be made that human beings are hierarchical creatures. We form hierarchies almost immediately in, in, in groups. We, we form status hierarchies in very small groups and other kinds of hierarchies. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, we, uh, we share a lot with our, our primate relatives. Now, there's a long history of human beings making claims about uh, our fundamental nature on the basis of our likeness to, to apes and so forth. And you have to be really careful about doing this. And I try in the book to be very careful. But I think it would be naive to just sort of ignore the fact that we share, you know, almost 99% of our DNA with, uh, with chimps and bonobos and silverback gorillas, creatures who are intensely hierarchical. And um, so that's, you know, kind of one data point um, and uh, that, that human beings are status creatures. There's been really great work in sociology and, and psychology in the last sort of decade looking at status and how um, we, we, we rank ourselves uh, vis-a-vis others, how we are you know, constantly kind of on the lookout and trying to detect signs of dominance or submission. Uh, and, 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 you know, marketers know this, <laughs> uh, but we talk about it. We talk about it less. And I think it's important. And I make the claim at the beginning of the book that, you know, if we want to think seriously about equality and how to bring it about, we need to, to wrestle with um, 
with human proclivity for hierarchy. Now, there are counter, uh, countervailing impulses to that. You know, human beings um, uh, can, can, can rank themselves, but we also have um, uh, tendencies towards reciprocity and altruism and sharing. Uh, we work together. We're the cooperative species par excellence. And both those things are going on, right, uh, in, in, our, in our kind of uh, our makeup. And you can see them play out over and over again. Um, but this makes equality, I think, you know, um, it's one of the reasons why it's an elusive concept, because in some ways we want it and we don't. Uh, part of our nature uh, desires equality and part of us actually kind of wants to be a little bit on, on top. Um, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, I guess there's this interesting thing here of like how much of, you know, people make a big to do about this. But I think that there's I think because I think one pe- reason people get worried about this is that it will somehow diminish human equality, which we can maybe get to at the end of sorts. But this idea though, that if we have a hierarchy or or this kind of uh, leveling of sorts, you know, kind of, you know, this person's on top of this person, this person on top of this person is that, you know, this is all kind of within the genes or there's this like determinist kind of thing. But I don't really see it that way. I think that you see this as there's a biological components, but there's a heavy environmental component as well. And I think that people, again, over and under emphasize certain parts of this, but kind of what you're saying here is that it is contextually based as well, right? There are things that are true for us as humans, but we don't live in a vacuum. We live in a context. And I think that that's important, yeah? Absolutely, right? Uh, I mean, human beings... (laughs) Nature doesn't make us, right? And, and, and Darwinians and others will tell us that, of course, that, that um, uh, our environments are, are key to how, how we act and how we live out. Um, but maybe I'd put a finer point on, uh, on hierarchy because uh, there's, there's an often, I think, a tendency to confuse hierarchy and, and domination. Now, mm-hmm. the, the line between the two can be fine, but this is a classic distinction that the great German sociologist Max Weber made in the 19th century and is... Uh, I think a useful one. Domination, he says, is um, illegitimate authority. Right? Uh, I dominate. Somebody dominates me, and they they make me do things against my will. Hierarchies, in more more cases than not, are actually legitimate. Right? Mm. Um, lieutenants may grumble at the water cooler about the majors and the uh, the colonels, but they're not fundamentally you know contesting uh, that that system. Same at universities. Same everywhere. And status hierarchies are literally everywhere. I mean, in the most woke academic department, there's status going on. Uh, on your Twitter feed, there's status hierarchies and jockeying and, and games going on. So, uh, and, and more, more often than not, as I say, hierarchies are, are, are sort of accepted and we form them uh, automatically. Now, the question then becomes, well, on the basis of what uh, and according to what? I mean, let me give a, a concrete example of how this plays out in, in the kind of history of mm-hmm. equality because, again, I think it helps to kind of to, to anchor us here a little bit. So, you know... When the, when the founding fathers declare, uh, as it says on the back of your $1 bill, the Noah's uh, Ordo uh, Seclorum, the new order uh, of the century, um, you know, they're declaring a kind of equality. Um, but that new order, and in fact, the word order in Latin means uh, hierarchy, in fact, a kind of a sacred organ, uh, organizing or ordering, um, on the basis of, of, of a new set of criteria. So, um, uh, but it's a new hierarchy. Right? So Jefferson says, you know, that um, we're no longer going to um, give people merit on the basis of their uh, 
blood uh, or, or their titles or their ancestry, right? Uh, this kind of uh, tinsel aristocracy calls them. We're going to uh, we're going to value people and rank people on the basis of, of 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 merit and virtue and intelligence and what they do in the world. That's a new hierarchy, right? That's mm-hmm. a new way we call it meritocracy. It's a new way of ordering society. Um, and, and in fact, I mean, what's you know ironic about that is that, uh, that Jefferson and others actually use this phrase "natural aristocracy." Mm-hmm. It's a natural aristocracy to replace the old uh, unnatural aristocracy. But I think it it gets at nicely how. Um, you know, the new order that comes into being is simply a, a, a new hierarchy and that hierarchy and inequality uh, or hierarchy and inequality rather are not, uh, are not natural opposites. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big firm believer in hierarchy. I mean, I think it's really, really important. Um, but again, I mean, it's like anything else. I mean, there, are, there are ways where there's bad faith actors and people can be pretty pernicious with using hierarchies, et cetera, and to, to definitely keep other people down. But I don't think inherently hierarchies are are terrible. And I think we, we see a lot of the outcomes in a positive way of many of the hierarchies in our, in our world. They're ranking systems. Mm-hmm. Hierarchy can very quickly lead to domination and that's, you know, uh, a bad thing. Um, but when they're accepted and they're, they're seen as fair and just, uh, it's a way of ordering uh, and facilitating human interaction and they're, they're necessary and they're ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. They're just there all the time. Mm-hmm. And you can draw them on the basis of different criteria, mm-hmm. um, but, but they're going to be there. You just real quick, you, you also mentioned the nature of cooperation with humans. Uh, this is a topic that, you know, at this point is, is getting, is getting beaten over so much. And I, I hear a lot of it and there's good research on it. I mean, I, I've talked about it a lot on the, on, on the podcast here with, with wonderful, um, you know, scientists. Um, but in terms of first with, 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 with equality, how do you see cooperation as being a kind of necessary variable here, right? Do you, do we need to cooperate to be equal? Do all parties need to kind of be together on this and saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to play along with this. You know, is it possible to have equality where you're not cooperating or how do you see, I guess, the variable of cooperation here? Well, I I think cooperation is key. uh, Absolutely. And, um, you know, we need to cooperate to act together, to share, to, um, uh, to, to, to divide resources. Uh, and, and human beings are, as I said before, the, the cooperative species uh, par excellence. Um, now, uh, sometimes uh, equality can facilitate cooperation. Uh, I have a line, and I, I keep citing you know, examples from uh, Greece and Rome because these are examples that I know, but the book I, I, I want to make the point is, is very much global in its scope, particularly mm-hmm. early on. Uh, and I'm drawing a lot of different examples, but there's a line in, in Herodotus, the, the so-called father of history in the West. And he's talking about the Athenians and he said, you know, uh, they, they have a type of equality and this, this type of equality was uh, the basis of uh, Athenian strength and power in their armies, right? Because soldiers weren't taking orders from uh, superiors who were dominating and they were fighting uh, as co-equals for something they were invested in. I think you can make the same claim about French revolutionary soldiers. I think you can make the same claim about uh, about um, black soldiers in the Civil War. Uh, they 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 felt they were fighting together for a common purpose, uh, and that can be really really powerful, um, and uh, and it can be. Um, so that's 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 crucial that this cooperative aspect. Now I, I talk about in, in hunter gatherers in a way in which um, you know they they come together uh, and develop all kinds of. Uh, norms and ethos to, to 
promote pro-social values, to promote reciprocity, to promote cooperation. And, and, and again, I think this is crucial and it's also fundamentally part of our nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I, I, I'm very curious about this. Um, it's, I mean, it's obviously a tough topic. Slavery has been around for a long time, a long, long, long time. And it's never great. Uh, it's, it's obviously a horrible thing we do to each other. Where do we first see, I guess, slavery in kind of organized ways, I guess you could say. Um, I mean, I, maybe probably you could see, you know, pockets of it or things like that, but in, in very organized ways. And obviously there's differences with how people are enslaved across the world and different points of time. Um, and what's the connection here between equality and inequality and how we understand slavery? Wow, uh, big questions. And of course, we're covering a lot of ground. And what I try to do in, in the first part of the book is, is examine the theories of uh, what, what our human ancestors were like prior to the agricultural revolution, mm-hmm. uh, the New Stone Age about 12,000 years ago, and prior to the advent of, of states, which happened several thousand years later, prior to the formation of, of sedentary civilizations, which again, takes a long time to happen after the the first uh, agricultural turn. And what, what, what many people um, speculate is that our hunter-gatherer ancestors uh, fashioned relations that were relatively equal. Right? And one can uh, parse that in different ways, and I try to do that in the book, but uh, one I think can make a, a pretty um, strong claim that despite variation and differences, uh, that, that on the whole our ancestors, if only because they were mobile and had to carry everything they owned on their back, couldn't accumulate vast amounts of things, and therefore the distinctions between them were not great. Now, there are, there are counterexamples to that, and there are exceptions, and, and that's all important, but you know, allow me the kind of generalization. Mm-hmm. They certainly look pretty equal when we start to look at human societies everywhere in the world um, by about the third millennium BCE, about 2500 BCE, where you, you can basically find every type of inequality known to humanity sort of patriarchal systems that are backed up by law and religion, um, slavery, um, enforced labor, um, blood aristocracies, kingship, and so forth. And so, you know, the question then becomes, well, how do you get from that that other way of of being to that, including slavery? Um, And people have big debates over that, and I have theories, and I I rehearse them in the book. Slavery becomes a kind of major feature of human societies by that later point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, did our hunter-gatherer ancestors have uh, enslaved people? We, sh- we certainly know that they were violent and they engaged in warfare. And, you know, uh, slaves were initially war captives uh, and people impressed. And so it's quite possible that there were enslaved people, um, but not on scale, right? Uh, not on scale like you get uh, much later. And I think... You know, a compelling argument is made by the, uh, by the scholar Peter Turchin that one of the driving factors here is war. Mm. Um, that um, as after the agricultural revolution, uh, population uh, expands. People are maybe not eating well, but they're eating more and they're getting more calories. Uh, you get more competition for resources. Uh, and uh, warfare, which is already, you know, part of uh, human experience, accelerates. And there's a real premium placed upon amassing larger armies, 
uh, you know, size is a, a force multiplier in warfare, uh, as is hierarchy, actually, chain of command, which you know, can make for more efficient soldiers. And so what Turchin and others have argued is that there's a kind of you know, uh, ratcheting upward uh, to uh, get bigger and bigger armies uh, that then can, of course, you know, uh, enslave, impress, uh, take captive, um, keep, uh, make people uh, pay tribute, and do all the things that you know, the god kings of the archaic states uh, by the third century are doing. And here, you know, think Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. Uh, think, um, you know, one man uh, and uh, who, you know, claims to rule uh, through God uh, with so, a few advisors and military uh, might at his uh, behest, who was who literally, you know, um, putting and impressing uh, 98% of the population. The historian at Stanford, Walter Scheidel, calls this the great disequalization. And he, you know, he uses the phrase the original 1% to talk about these these elites that that crop up all over the world um, uh, in this period uh, to to do just what you say to enslave other human beings, and uh, unfortunately, this is um, it, it's 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 prevalent. It's interesting how that that starts. There's all these forces that are kind of pushing or creating a space for that, and how it continues to this day, even in a modern 21st century. It's 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 become a a really ugly feature of humanity, which is, which is, again, it's, 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 it's terrible, but from an anthropological perspective and historical perspective, quite interesting why we continue to do this and why we continue to persist no matter all the carnage, all the collateral damage, all the awful things uh, for sometimes centuries, we still do it. We still do this. Yeah, you can you know read UN reports about human trafficking and and, and slavery to this day, and um, mm-hmm. it, it does you know get at the the challenges to equality. I mean, if you can argue as we have that human beings have pro-social values and they have cooperative tendencies and they have the capacity for altruism and mm-hmm. sacrifice. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, human human beings are the only creatures that we, we will. Sacrifice our lives for complete strangers. Mm-hmm. I mean, we read this in the news all the time. Somebody jumps out of their car and rescues a, a child from a river, and then you know goes to their death. No other species will do that. Mm-hmm. So we have this great capacity, but at the same time, uh, we have this capacity to uh, not only create hierarchies, which many social species do, but to create domination on a scale that's unimaginable in the natural kingdom. And that's the you know the great paradox here. Mm-hmm. And of course, the challenge for those of us who would like to see the world uh, more equal than it is. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's a, it continues, unfortunately, to be a challenge. So in the Axial Age, you talk about uh, religions. And so religion, mm-hmm. um, you know, is, is loaded. <laughs> um, how does uh, religion contribute, I should say, to mm-hmm. um, systematic inequality um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the enlightenment and, you know, other things about, uh, Judeo-Christian values, but just generally the idea mm-hmm. of religions or religious, uh, dogmas or doctrines, how do, what's the contribution there mm-hmm. at, during this period and, and subsequently to, to you know, inequality? Sure. So we're working our way forward to the present, right? Uh, first chapter on, you know, 300,000 years ago to about 12,000 years ago, second chapter on this transition that occurs uh, and leads to the rise of these um, archaic states, as we call them, where you have these you know, kind of, uh, god kings ruling over the mass uh, uh, of humanity. Um, I follow the argument of the, the late great sociologist Robert Bella at Berkeley, 
um, who argued that the axial religions, and the, the axial age is this term that uh, a German philosopher Karl Jaspers used mm-hmm. to describe the simultaneous emergence uh, in the first millennia, roughly, uh, before the common era, on different continents of these, these faith traditions around which our morals continue to um, to turn today on these axes. So, you know, you get uh, the development of Buddhism, you get the development of classical Judaism, and, and so on and so forth. And what Bella argued is that actually it's in these religions that you see the first articulation of an egalitarian ethic. Mm. And his argument is that actually these uh, archaic states got so extreme that they had a legitimacy problem. And so you get prophets uh, um, who emerge, who uh, start to denounce extremes uh, of wealth, uh, who uh, themselves renounce, like the Buddha, uh, their own uh, princely background and, 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 and start to say that ordinary people have something in common with us, that they share a kind of fellowship uh, and that we need to recognize that and serve them. And so what, what I argue in the book is that actually in, in, in faith tradition after faith tradition, you see warrants for uh, thinking about a kind of human commonality, a kind of human fellowship that's initially a challenge to some of these archaic states. Now, as you also suggest, um, very quickly religion can get turned around and used to justify uh, hierarchies and, and, and reaffirm them, right? Um, the divine mandate in uh, China is the you know, emperor's sort of sacred imprimatur on, uh, on his massive power, and religion after religion uh, does that as well. The mechanism here, I think, often is um, a, you know, degrees of sacrality or degrees uh, of virtue. So um, you know, in, in many faith traditions, you have this idea that you know all uh, all human beings are children of God, um, but you know some fall away from the Father. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, they don't accept the message uh, of the Father. They turn on the Father, uh, and then therefore uh, they need to be excluded. And very quickly, a powerful binding force like religion can be used to justify um, not only domination but literally, you know. Uh, uh, persecution, and this happens over and over again. But religions, and this would be my, you know, my key takeaway point, that, that religions offer resources to do both things. Right? Um, they, they often uh, consecrate hierarchies, and they often, hierarchy itself is a Christian term, it just means sacred order, um, that's, that's coined in the seventh century by this uh, Syrian uh, theologian, um, Dionysus. Dionysus um, but um, uh, they at the same time offer resources to uh, to contest those hierarchies. And you see this play out over and over again. One of the points that I make uh, towards the end of the book is that in the 20th century, when notions of, uh, of equality really uh, are, are globalized and spread around the world, um, what many, uh, many peoples do is draw on their faith traditions uh, to take resources to, to, to forge new ideas of equality. So Gandhi is a great example of this. Uh, the R. Ambedkar, the Dalit leader in India, who are drawing on Hindu and, and Buddhist traditions uh, um, to, to fashion equality. Martin Luther King, of course, does this uh, vis-a-vis Christianity. So there's a tension there that I, I try to trace and, and, and see play out. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, religion can be used for good things and for, for terrible things. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword, I guess. Um, okay. So we get to the Greeks and, you know, I mean, you've referenced the Greeks a handful of times already. Many people do. I do myself as well. We, we, we do, we like the finer sides of what the Greeks gave us and they certainly gave us so much. I mean, I think the, 
the formalization, I guess you could say, of a lot of uh, philosophical thought and the idea of philosophy. I don't think they started it, of course, but they kind of formalized in a way. And we get a lot of our, I think, Western thought from them. And so they're they're tremendous. I mean, they're tremendous, their influence. So you can talk about that, what the Greeks gave to us as a humanity, but <laughs> um, they also were pretty down with slavery, which is not, I mean, not every, not all of the Greeks, but you know what I mean? There was a lot of folks that were okay with it and there was a type of aristocracy, et cetera, et cetera. So how did the Greeks kind of, you know, wax philosophical about all these things, about humanity, about, all the, you know, how, how, how can we live good lives? But then they have slavery and they have inequality and injustice as well of what we would see in on the on the human value of things uh how, how do we hold those two thoughts in our head at the same time well as you said before this is unfortunately how human beings are uh-huh. right um, yeah, we're, yeah. We're conflicted uh species um the uh the, the primatologist Franz de walls calls us bipolar and yeah. um, i think this is good evidence so I'm interested in the Greeks, not because, you know, they're somehow the magical font of, you know, civilization, Western civilization. In fact, I use the Greeks and particularly the Athenians, whom I talk about at some length, as a proxy for um, talking about uh, democratic values. And we know now that, you know, democracy is not a, a uniquely Western notion. You can find democratic forms in uh, mm-hmm. many different places around the world. It is true, though, that we, we, we know more about the Athenians and more about Greek democracy than any other place just because of the source base. And so I examine Greek ideas, you know, with that understanding. And I also see Greek philosophical notions as very much a part of these axial uh, wisdom traditions that I mentioned before. What I think is you know, particularly interesting about Athens is that um, here you get not just an assertion of, of, of human fellowship and our maybe common standing be, before God, but a kind of praxis, right? What would equality look like in practice? You absolutely rightly say the Greeks, you know, have slavery, and indeed their ideas of uh, equality are uh, are founded upon uh, inequalities. And it goes back to our opening discussion that equality is, the claims are often the the, the premise of uh, uh, of inequality. So, um, what did the Athenians do? Well, you know, in a series of reforms, they get rid of uh, their despots and kings, mm. and they argue that uh, that the full citizens themselves should 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 rule themselves. Full citizens should have the right of isagoria, um, and a kind of equal uh, um, capacity to speak in the the main Greek assembly. This is what all citizens have. They should have uh, the right of isokratia, the um, equality before the law, and that too is shared by. By fellow citizens. And they talk about different types of uh, equality uh, and balance, uh, equality of things, and, they, and they, they put practices in place to try to, to make this a reality. But it is, as you say, predicated even in, the, in, in Athens, which is the most democratic of all the Greek city-states, on the, the assumption that's not challenged by anyone that, well, women are not uh, um, equals uh, of men, uh, and they're not citizens. Um, resident aliens shouldn't have uh, the same privileges and, and rights uh, as men. Uh, slaves, uh, whether uh, war captives or, as Aristotle says, a kind of natural slave, whatever that might be, uh, shouldn't have the same privileges. And those two things go fundamentally together uh, for the Greeks. And I would argue 
in more cases than not, go fundamentally together with equality claims. That again, this idea that exclusion uh, or an inequality is sort of built into the, the claim itself is, is really part and parcel of equality doctrine until relatively recently. Mm. Uh, and even now when we you know, claim universal equality or the universal rights of all human beings, it's predicated on the assumption, you know, uh, whether acknowledged or not, that we're dominating over uh, over the beasts and the animals, as you know, a philosopher like Peter Singer mm-hmm. will remind us. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you happen to be a cow uh, or a chicken, um, that kind of sucks. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but again, you know, even universal equality for human beings is predicated on this yeah. uh, on this understanding of the repression of another species. Mm-hmm. So, um, and you know, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. But I have this whole chapter on fascist conceptions of equality. And that mm-hmm. sounds strange initially to almost everybody. Mm-hmm. And it quite frankly sounds strange to me when I started encountering it. But one of the, I think the more savvy and insightful fascist theorists, Nazi theorist, Carl Schmitt, whose name you probably know, he's thought of as the crown jurist of, uh, of the Nazis, but he's an important political thinker in the 20th century. He says, you know, this is, this is true of all democracies, that, that, um, that equality claims, he says, don't have any substance or value unless they're predicated upon uh, inequality. And the, the, the inequality is what gives the kind of binding force to uh, the equals themselves. And that you know, contemporary uh, liberals, in his view, are kidding themselves when they claim it can be otherwise. That to claim universal equality is to talk about an equality that has no teeth, yeah. that has no substance, that has no there there. And he would say that if you look at real democracies, and he goes back, in fact, to Athens yeah. uh, and, and to 17th century England and to, uh, uh, to America, he said they're always founded on exclusions. And, of course, he takes great joy in that and glee in that and celebrates the fact, and it's you know, pretty nauseating. But it's hard to deny that he has a certain point, that he's you know, kind of poking holes in uh, a mythology that says, oh, you know, our uh, uh, equality is universal and for everyone and doesn't rest on some of these, these fundamental power moves. Yeah, I mean, he is a very interesting thinker. I mean, obviously, there's the Nazi uh, nonsense, but uh, he is someone that is worth, I think, you know, at least analyzing and studying. I mean, I think we should study all different types of ideas and 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 see what's going on there. Uh, I do want to come back to that, but before we do, I guess I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna fuse some of these uh, these ideas together. So you see if I see if I can if I can do this. So there's this. Obviously, there's Christendom or Judeo-Christian mm-hmm. values that is sort of connected to Enlightenment values. Not obviously directly, but there is a, a shadow, if you will, a, a, over it. And this, these Enlightenment values are um, seen maybe uh, in practice or, um, you know, they're actualized in the American Revolution and the French Revolution, right? Jefferson, all men are created equal. But we know that, you know, Jefferson had slaves. Many people have, you know, he, he, he did a lot of horrible things actually to his own slaves. Um, but he's, you know, talking about all men are created equal. Again, this, this, this conflict, right? You know, two, two different ideas at the same time. And then there's the French Revolution, which had their own uh, challenges. So what can we take, I guess, from enlightenment values and how it was tried to be applied and some of the ways in which it was successful, I would say, but then in other ways where it was at the um, at the at the 
you know, kind of penalty for, you know, against other people or not everyone was included as much as we think or things Mm -hmm. like that. How do we understand those kind of enlightenment values or ideas that they're great, but they're not perfect? How do we, with this idea of equality? Sure. So a lot on the plate there. We started with Christianity and then went to the Enlightenment. And let me try to yeah. combine them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, you mentioned Jefferson uh, and that famous phrase from the Declaration, all men are created equal. I think if you ask a lot of Americans in particular, you know, about that, they'll say, well, you know, it's a great idea. It's a universal principle. It's not realized at the time, of course, uh, fully and extended. Um, but it's a novel idea. It's a radical idea. It's a revolutionary idea. And most people, I think, think of equality as a modern idea. And really one of the main aims of the book is to remind us that actually human beings have been thinking about equality for thousands of years and that, that old, those older ways of thinking about equality and doing equality have a bearing on what comes after. So that phrase is a case in point. The, the, the phrase uh, all men are created equal is, and, and the idea behind it is a commonplace of Stoic philosophy amongst the Greeks. It's a commonplace of uh, Roman jurisprudence. It's, it's, it's um, you know, put uh, exactly that way uh, by uh, the Roman jurist Ulpian, um, who then gets incorporated into the Roman digest by Justinian. And, and a pope, Gregory the Great, um, declares this on numerous occasions, omnis hominis aequelis uh, sunt, all men are equal, and all men are, are generated or created equal, he says. He says that in, 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 in a context uh, of uh, understanding um, and, and accepting slavery. Gregory, as, uh, as Pope, uh, uh, would have uh, owned slaves. Uh, the Romans, of course, have no question with slavery. Early Christians um, argue that uh, all men were created equal. And this is, in fact, a commonplace of, of early patristic thought. So when Jefferson makes that announcement in the 18th century, it's not nearly as radical as it may, may sound. And of course, he himself is uttering it in the context um, uh, of, uh, of, a, of, a, of an understanding, even if it's a, a complicated one, uh, that, that slavery is, uh, exists and uh, is a practice that his uh, fellow citizens engage in. Now, um, so, so one of my, my claims here, and, you know, this leads to this question, and I, I explored it some link in the book, you know, to what degree Christianity influences ideas uh, of equality. And uh, in, in the 19th century, somebody like Friedrich Nietzsche, you know, will say that, that all modern equality doctrines are really just Christian ideas gone wrong. Uh, he's not a fan, of course, uh, either of equality or of uh, Christianity, and so he's He's casting aspersion on both, but somebody like Alexis de Tocqueville, the great analyst of uh, American democracy, um, also thinks that Christianity is behind modern doctrines of, uh, of equality, and he takes a kind of kinder, gentler view on it. So I actually think there's there's something to those claims, and I try to show how um, modern equality in the 18th century doesn't emerge out of nothing, but emerges out of a context which shapes how it's received. But having said that, um, there's no question that something new happens in the 18th century as well. And this is the standard account that, that equality is invented in the 18th century or kind of emerges. Um, the, the, there's a French sociologist, Louis Dumont, who wrote a book uh, um, in which he argued that, you know, modern equal man, homo equalis, you know, uh, emerges in the 18th century out of homo hierarchicus. And this is this, this abrupt and radical shift. Um, that, that is generated by the Enlightenment. And um, there's no question that there are uh, Enlightenment values, and I'll talk about uh, a good number of them, that, that posit um, the, a common humanity, right? the, the, the likeness of all human beings, 
um, that begin uh, to talk about uh, rights, uh, uh, not just for uh, citizens, but for all human beings. Uh, and, and that's there, and that's put on the table in the 18th century. But at the same time, the Enlightenment um, puts forth uh, some pretty uh, you know, radically different ideas. Um, my, my colleague, Sieb Sturman, whom I mentioned before, historian who wrote this great book on the origins of common humanity, says that the Enlightenment is uh, Janus-faced. It's a reference to the Roman god who looks both ways. So at the same time, we see new ideas of common humanity. We also see, uh, generated by the Enlightenment, new ideas of race, right? uh, a kind of racial essentialism or environmentally uh, created uh, racial difference. We see new ideas of gender, which posit you know, kind of fundamental dissimilarity between uh, women uh, and men. We see new ideas of economic development that posit some societies uh, are farther ahead in the kind of progress and development of, of humanity than others and, and will, will remain that way. So the Enlightenment, not unlike these older uh, religious traditions, gives us tools to think about equality in new ways, but also fashions, if you will, the kind of manacles to, uh, to enslave us or uh, to, um, to keep us down in new ways too. And I think that's, you know, this is one of the reasons why the Enlightenment continues to fascinate us. It's, it's both light and dark. Um, it's both uh, good uh, and bad. Yeah, I think that's, that's such, a, such an essential point. I, I, I really, uh, you, know, <clears throat> you know, value you kind of explain it that way because a lot of people have this idyllic idea of the enlightenment enlightenment values and and i love enlightenment values i'm not i'm not trying to to shit on it necessarily i mean i think they're great but they're not perfect and they do have flaws and they are a product of their time they're i mean i i on so many things in life things are we 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 make let's say good moments or we have good progress in in moments and it's great and, and, but we can't keep playing the greatest hits, right? We got to, you know, we, we move right. forward in time and, and time uh, evolves and changes in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways it doesn't, but we need to think about, you know, how do we do things for this century and we can build off of that, but we don't need to just copy and paste it forever and forever and forever. Now, a lot of times I feel like people talk about it that way as if it's a, you know, it's the 11th mm-hmm. commandment. You can't talk anything about, you know, enlightenment values. And it's like, yeah, I mean, they're ideas, which we should judge and criticize. Um, and there's a lot of good, but there's a lot of terrible things too. And there's a lot of things that don't fit with our modern, you know, modern age, you know, in our modernity. So, you know, I, I, I think it's important what you're saying about, yeah, there's a lot of good, there's a lot of bad in there. So, you know, that's, that's the right way to, I think, see it. No, I think so too. And again, you know, I mean, there are people who, who trace all good uh, to the Enlightenment as if, if this is kind of privileged period of yeah, our, yeah. our birth. But then there are people who do the opposite, right, and say, well, the, you know, the Enlightenment is nothing but uh-huh. you know, kind of justification for slavery and environmental destruction and so on and so forth. And really, both things uh, can be true. You know, yeah. we shouldn't think in such uh, binary terms. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I fully agree. So last question I want to ask you is this idea of kind of more modern. So obviously you mentioned, you know, cause it, it's a history. So it's, it's towards the end of the book, mm-hmm. you know, civil rights was, was a, was a big moment, especially for in, in United States history of fighting for equality. Right. You know, mm-hmm. that we see that there's dimensions to that. Um, and you know, black Americans 
you know, maybe were equal in some ways on paper, but they certainly weren't treated that way. Um, they weren't under various laws. They weren't uh, for voting. They weren't for many things. So, you know, that was a, a kind of another piece of it. And, and so, you know, talk about how equality and the fight for equality in that period looks, you know, we're 60 years, I guess, from like kind of the height of that now. Um, and kind of point us in the direction of where we're at currently. So again, six years later, you know, we're in a new century. We continue to have these, dis, uh, you know, debates and discussions about um, equality um, in terms of, you know, for many people around the world, we still talk about this for women around the world. We still talk about this for certain ethnic groups around the world. Um, and, and also as we continue to evolve as a, as a species and what that looks like, you know, how do we, you know, how do we understand equality moving forward in the 21st century? Some of the things we're facing, some of the things that with this issue, uh, so kind of, yeah, civil rights and then where we had it. All right. Well, we're uh, leaping over centuries and chapters, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm hoping people, uh, will fill in the gaps by, by reading the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a chapter on the French Revolution and one on socialist tradition, and I talk about decolonization at length. And it's uh, I wanted to talk uh, about the socialist one, but I, that's such yeah, a can yeah. of worms. I can't I can't touch it without. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess you know the, the the secret here is that Marx didn't like equality, but uh, you know I'll let you uh, read that in the chapter. Um, but but yeah, and and so I conclude uh, with a discussion of, of the civil rights movement and the genesis of black power and second wave feminism and you know all the all the stuff that. Uh, uh, interests us still. And look, I'm not going to be able to summarize this all, but let me make yeah. a couple points. One is that I try to show, and I spend quite a lot of time uh, discussing uh, Martin Luther King. And what I try to do is embed him in a, in a longer uh, tradition. I mean, King himself is mm-hmm. very self-consciously um, activating and, and, and pulling out and reinterpreting Christian notions, but as well as, you know, as filtered through Gandhi, um, uh, religious notions from other faith traditions. Uh, He's drawing on the liberal Protestant tradition. He's drawing on uh, the black radical tradition. He's drawing on a lot of things. And it allows him to kind of inflect equality with with new ideas. And we haven't talked about this yet either, but um, each chapter is organized around a kind of central governing concept. Um, And and, and I I begin the chapter on the civil rights movement by showing how King... um, uh, in in the famous I Have a Dream speech in, in, at the March on Washington in 1963, goes through, you know, one after another of these, what I call figures or ways of, uh, of presenting equality. Hmm. Um, so he's taking on board, you know, this, this rich tradition and then reinterpreting it and reinflecting it, and of course, trying to extend it to people hmm. who had been uh, disenfranchised and in many ways still are. Hmm. Um, and the rest of the chapter then sort of see looks at how how these ideas are taken up, contested right, by black radicals and by, by feminists and by others, uh, leading uh, <laughs> uh, you know inching towards the present. I know we're we're running out of time. You ask about kind of where we're headed, and I I can say a lot about that. And I, I have a concluding chapter in which I try to you know do what historians really shouldn't do, and that is to speculate about the future. But um, <laughs> So be it. Um, but one of the points I, I, I'd like to leave your listeners with is that it's really easy to be pessimistic about uh, about the future of equality or, or the future or, or optimistic about the future of inequality today. Mm. Uh, we live at a time of you know surging inequalities uh, in, in, in many different uh, 
our ways and, and you know, dominates our headlines. Um, the, the British sociologist Mike Savage calls this an inequality paradigm. We have institutes devoted to the study of inequality. We have books tracing 10,000 years of inequality. It's just everywhere. You can't open the newspaper without it. And, and of course, there's real data to back up this interest, mm-hmm. which is important in itself. Yeah. But it can blind us from the fact that really not that long ago, and I, again, go back to the civil rights movement and to uh, what succeeds it in the 70s, human beings had a really different understanding of what the future would bring. They, they believed that we were moving in the direction of a greater equality, that we were pushing towards a greater equality. And I discuss how recent that idea was, really, you know, up until the, the Wall Street crash in 2007-2008, um, this was a dominant reflection, people publishing book after yeah. book after book. What I try to, to, to remind us of, and, and the whole book is an attempt to do this, is that human beings have been tremendously creative and innovative in thinking about equality uh, over the course of human history. Um, I put my money on the fact that we're going to continue to be that way. In other words, that we, we reinvented equality time and again, and we can do so again in the future. And so, you know, uh, although there's real cause for pessimism, uh, I think that, you know, uh, you can put money on uh, human beings' capacity to think and rethink uh, and to implement forms of equality that, that uh, you know, may do us well in the future. Yeah, I, I, I really like that because I, I feel like people become, you know, too short-sighted of sorts or the, this, the present moment and there's all these issues. And there's certainly many issues uh, on, on equality and, 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 and otherwise. But, you know, when you look at trend lines, right, you look at where we're at, I think your point is, is well taken is that, yeah, we were trying to move forward. We were pushing in a good space and, you know, it, Two steps forward, forward, three steps backwards. But I think we have this ability to 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 rebound in a way that says, you know, we we fight back, we figure it out, we survive, and we try to make a space where things are more equal. So I I, I firmly agree with your your position there. The- yeah, and I, you know, I think you don't have to be a kind of blithe optimist to, to acknowledge that there there have been movement in positive directions. And I try to summarize mm-hmm. some of that data. Uh, uh, in in recent years, and it's not all negative, yeah, right? Yeah, uh, and so yeah, uh, you know, take courage and hope. Yeah, exactly. That's that's, that's exactly the the way we should, uh, I think, look at things. The book is called Equality: A History of an Elusive Idea. It's out through Basic. It is uh, a fantastic book. Uh, much too short my time with you, Darren. There are so many things we didn't cover, uh, and I highly, highly encourage uh, listeners to. Get out and uh, and and buy the book and and read it and and uh, hopefully this is a nice springboard. Any place you want to point people to, to 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 find you or your work or any place in particular? You know, I've kind of sworn off all social media. I have a website that's just my name, DarrenMcMahon.com, with all information and about my other books and so forth. But uh, nice. you know, hopefully we'll coming to a bookstore near you. Yeah. Darren, this was so much fun. I've been looking forward to this. I absolutely loved your book and uh, uh, you're, you're, you're such a, a thrill and a lot of fun to have in, in conversation on this. So it was, it was really delightful. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Xavier. Me too. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Really.